MSW Media. We'd like to welcome HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit, for sponsoring this episode of It's Complicated. Go to HelloFresh.com slash 50complicated and use code 50complicated for 50% off plus free shipping. So, Renato, is the Fulton County indictment the most important one yet? Uh, it's complicated. I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal contributor for ABC News. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down into a soundbite or a tweet. So, So. (laughs) this one seemed very big. I will just say it's interesting because I actually thought the excitement level for of people and the anticipation would go down over time. Like at a certain point, you've kind of experienced the whole indictment of Trump thing. But no. Uh, there seems to be a heck of a lot of interest and enthusiasm about this indictment. Yeah. Well, I think when people hear Rico, I don't know. It's like a Pavlovian response. People get very excited. <laughs> poor poor Pope hat. He's not on t- know, Twitter or exactly X anymore. I was exactly wondering. I was like, it's finally his moment and he's not on Twitter anymore. I know. I got to look up what he said on threads, but yeah, I mean, Rico, just so let's just start with that. Okay. Cause I got to tell you that's, that's actually an, an annoyance of mine as well. You know, Rico, uh, you know, and I'm saying this, I'm from a federal prosecutor, former federal prosecutor perspective. I know that the Georgia statute's broader. Um, it's more construed more liberally, but generally speaking, and I speak not only for myself, but many, if not most federal prosecutor, former federal prosecutors is, it's sort of a statute that we hated charging. We tried to avoid charging like the plague. Um, one of my first trials ever I watched was a RICO trial, the famous family secrets trial of the Chicago mob, uh, mob boss, uh, that it, there's been many books and, 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 uh, you know, uh, uh TV stuff uh, done about. Um, and I've to watch gang RICO trials, uh, many of them, but I always tried to avoid charging RICO and, and many prosecutors do because it's really complicated and complex to prove up. It's not intuitive at all to a jury. You have to prove that there's something called a criminal enterprise, whatever that means. And you've got to try to connect everyone up to that and say that there's, you have to prove all these underlying crimes you connect up to the enterprise. It's very complicated and cumbersome. And so usually, you know, prosecutors are trying to find a way not to charge it. But in bizarro world of public opinion, uh, everyone thinks that makes that suddenly makes everything much more serious and complicated. It, it's certainly more complicated. I will say in this case, it does mean a mandatory minimum of five years if there's a conviction, which I guess uh, is certainly uh, an important fa- uh, feature of the Georgia RICO statute. So let's just rewind for a second. So RICO, the intention in creating this was to be able to go after criminal organizations like, you know, organized crime. It was mostly organized crime. And yeah. I guess gangs. Yeah, it was for organized crime. It's been applied to gangs, though, right? Like, you know, gang activity. Right, because they're very similar. I mean, 
people like talk about them like they're very different, but right. Uh, the gangster disciples are basically like the mob. They just, they do a lot of the same stuff uh, that the mob did. Right. There's a leader. He's telling them, you know, go do X, Y, Z. And all of it is with essentially uh, a criminal purpose, you know, whether it's, you know, I don't know, some car theft ring or, you know, in the case of organized crime, money laundering through all these businesses or whatever, and my understanding is that the purpose of, of RICO is to create a vehicle to be able to get to the people at the top who might be directing the activity and then have all these different pieces under them that uh, are executing the plan. So, you know, the mob boss who might be a couple of degrees removed, but is still like ordering the hit, I guess. Right. It, it's basically helps to work against, it, it's supposed to cut through things like compartment, compartmentalization and things of that nature. Um, you know, uh, we have something in that uh, everyone knows, I think, if, who's listening to this podcast in, in criminal law called conspiracy, which is much simpler to prove and much more straightforward. When you have an agreement to commit a crime, you're on the hook, whether you're the one who completed, you know, actually was doing all the acts or not. But here, this doesn't require a specific agreement amongst all the people in the criminal enterprise. The idea is, you know, if we all kind of have different roles and you're distant and removed from what, you know, my people are doing, you still are kind of responsible for all of that. It was created, I think, by some law professors a long time ago or written up or, uh, to try to, to tackle this problem, the mob. It's interesting. The most to me, the, what's interesting is at times. Got, uh, you know, certainly the Justice Department, which I follow more closely than what's going on in Georgia, you know, in, in terms of what Georgia uh, prosecutors are doing, they have applied it to a bunch of unusual situations, right? R. Kelly was charged as part of a RICO enterprise in New York. Uh, essentially, his posse that was finding young underage women for him to sexually abuse uh, were, you know, were charged as a RICO enterprise. But there's also times where like the DOJ is like, hey, this group of traders at a major Wall Street bank are all a RICO enterprise and they're charged that way. They, they, in that, in that case that I have in mind, they were all not guilty, found not guilty because I just think the jurors are having scratching their heads and having trouble, you know, getting their heads around these like banker types who are doing trades, like being part of some criminal enterprise. That's the downside from a prosecutor's perspective because you're, you have to kind of convince the jury to buy into this whole notion that there's a criminal enterprise there. Yeah. And another context where they applied RICO was in Operation Varsity Blues. This was the admission yes. scandal. Um, and that was actually really interesting because I just said that, you know, RICO, I think, is intended to be a vehicle to get to the, the people or the person at the top. And what was really interesting in Varsity Blues is they they got the guy at the top and then they used him to, like, identify all of the different uh, parts at the, you know, bottom and it does seem like what RICO does that ordinary conspiracy law doesn't is it allows for various sub-conspiracies to basically be linked together. This kind of gets to your, your compartmentalization piece. Like, so if you have, and in some ways, I mean, that is what January 6th was, right? I mean, if you think of it as there was a conspiracy to, like, get these states to generate false states of electors. There's a separate conspiracy to have the state legislatures throw out their results and then, you know, find the votes here and do X, Y, Z in Congress. So there's a, a number of different things going on, which is why I drew my diagram, because it's almost really hard to keep track of all the pieces. And 
do you not think that Rico is a good fit for something like that where, you know, you, what was going on with, you know, I don't know, Steve Bannon and Roger Stone was kind of maybe not directly linked to what Rudy Giuliani and the Kraken team were doing, but they were all intended to move towards the same goal. Yeah, it's it's certainly, uh, I think it's a plot. You've made the best possible argument you can make for it. And by the way, another thing that Rico does often is it makes it easier to bring an out of district conduct, which is why it was used in the R. Mm-hmm. Kelly case because these prosecutors in New York were trying to charge things that happened in like California and Chicago and elsewhere uh, in New York. But yeah, I, I think that, that you've made a good argument there. Uh, Sean, I certainly think a case can be made. But, you know, I think the the comparison indictment to use here is Jack Smith's indictment and then kind of line it up against Bonnie Willis's. And I, I you know, in my analogy, what I would say is Jack Smith used a scalpel and Fonnie Willis used a sledgehammer to achieve the try to achieve similar results. You know, Jack Smith um, did what I would have done in this context to use conspiracy law as opposed to Rico. He's like, I'm just going to charge this as a conspiracy. Yes, it had different parts and but conspiracies sometimes do, and that's okay. And in his case, he, he took on a, a, as narrow of a case he could against Donald Trump. In other words, he cut out all the stuff about incitement that was going to create a lot of First Amendment arguments and things like that. He carefully wrote around Mark Meadows. I think he's not mentioned at all, even as an un, unindicted, unindicted co-conspirator, because presumably he wants to use him as a witness. He, it seemed to me like he was trying to get to the kind of the tightest story he could to tell a trial. And I think that is what I used to be like as a prosecutor. But there's different styles as prosecutors. And throwing the book at somebody and throwing all your ammo at them, uh, so to speak, is also a viable approach. I, to give a contrast that some of our listeners might be familiar with, Andrew Weissman against Manafort threw everything at that guy. I mean, that guy was charged with like everything under the sun in two different jurisdictions. He was not found guilty of everything, but it didn't matter, right? You get a, as long as you find, get some felony counts, you, you win. And I think there, here, she indicted all sorts of crimes. She indicted everybody she possibly could, I think. I don't think she held a lot of punches here. And she might get more flippers this way. She, she may get more convictions. I think she, she doesn't care if she bats a thousand here. She's just, she's shooting all her shots. Yeah. And she lists 161 racketeering acts that encompass all of these defendants. So in some ways it gave her a way to tell a really, really big story um, on what was going on at every level in every different area, you know, and I wonder Renato, I mean, I know that you've had strong feelings about whether Bonnie Wills should even be bringing charges, and I don't know if this has changed your mind. But one point that I made when I was on TV last night is elections, as, although we think of it as pres- presidential elections as sort of a federal interest, they mostly implicate the states when there's interference of any kind because they're administered by the states. And, you know, it's state officials that are trying to ensure the integrity of the elections. It's state machinery that needs to be secured. Um, And in some ways, maybe it's actually juxtaposing it with Jack Smith. It makes sense that his is narrow and hers is sprawling because, I mean, states 
not only in elections, but generally, like that's where the vast majority of law is, is at the state level. And so um, they are a separate sovereign that have very distinct interests that need to be protected and vindicated. Yeah, I don't really have any problem with state prosecutors uh, investigating and prosecuting this. I mean, we saw this in Michigan, right? We talked a little bit about that. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah, the mm-hmm. Michigan electors uh, were prosecuted, uh, and there's an indictment pending against a whole slew of them in, in, by the Mich- uh, Michigan Attorney General. And I think I, I don't fault her for bringing that indictment. I think um, that can serve as a strong deterrent. I mean, from my perspective, what Fannie Willis did here, I mean, what I'm, I, actually feel the strongest about actually are the charges against some of these other people. In my opinion, an argument can be made that Trump is as deterred as he's going to be. In other words, uh, you know, the argument really uh, for her to indict on top of the others is more maybe a pardon proofing or, you know, Jeffrey Clark, attorney general, future attorney general, Jeffrey Clark can't shut it down, that sort of thing, which is all, those are all valid points. But to me, I mean, she's the first person to charge Rudy Giuliani, the first person to charge uh, uh, Fonnie, or uh, excuse me, Jenna Ellis, first person to charge Mark Meadows, and a whole cast of others. And I do think it's going to have an interplay in the Jack Smith case. I don't think Jenna Ellis is going to show up to testify. Or if, I mean, if I was her lawyer, I would be advising her to exercise her Fifth Amendment right. So I think there's going to be an interplay there, but it also is a deterrent. It basically lets all these sort of um, wannabe, um, you know, uh, celebrity types like, hey, Je- you know, the Jenna Ellis's and Sydney Powell's of the world who want attention and are willing to say anything. There may be consequences here. Um, and, and I think so. I think she did a great thing there regarding the whole trial, though. Um, and, and all that she's taken on, she's kind of got a tiger by the tail. And it'll be very interesting to see. I'm just saying this not as somebody kind of providing a moral judgment, but as a trial lawyer and somebody who handles these sorts of things all the time, you know, is she, has she bitten off more than she could chew? I guess that remains to be seen. But to me, having the Jenna Ellis's and the Sydney Pauls of the world scrambling and hiring attorneys, uh, is not an, uh, is not a bad thing at all. I did not cry a tear when I saw Jenna Ellis's name on that indictment. I've had little, I've had online debates with her. She's, she's a piece of work something else yeah she's yeah. really a piece of work so all of the, i noticed she was very quiet on twitter or x or whatever it is nowadays uh she, she had nothing to say about the indictment not everybody decides only donald trump and maybe sam bankman freed uh decide that their their brilliant ideas to like just tweet their way through it right i mean i'm very glad that she definitely named the lawyers because you know that i feel very strongly about uh the role that lawyers played in this whole saga um, and how it is really a violation of their professional duties. And it was trying to give a veneer of legality to basically this coup attempt. Um, I was surprised that she brought Jeffrey Clark into it because she brought him in for his role as a federal official, which was really interesting that I, I thought, you know, she brings in how... He was trying to submit the letter falsely stating that the Department of Justice had found evidence of voter fraud when they hadn't, which would, of course, you know, really, we talked about this last week, this whole uh, legitimizing propaganda, which would have lent the entire operation um, that was executed in all these other areas in the state a much greater 
air of authenticity and credibility that they were doing something that was actually legitimized or authorized or encouraged by the United States Justice Department. So, and and so it was a interesting um, bringing in of sort of the federal into the state. I thought. Yeah. And one which there'll probably be litigation about. I mean, I'm sure Jeffrey Clark's lawyers are going to try to argue that this is inappropriate for a state prosecution. But, you know, one of those, one of the things about prosecutorial discretion is when prosecutors decide to exercise it to charge you, uh, you bear the vast majority of the consequences of that, no matter what the outcome is. I mean, even if Jeffrey Clark ends up successfully litigating his way out of this for a couple of years, this guy's still been indicted. He's still facing a host of embarrassment, a ton of legal fees. You know, Donald Trump is fundraising off of this and running for president and living large. Uh, Jeffrey Clark is not. And Jenna Ellis, all these people who are scrambling and, you know, the average person who gets indicted is basically screwed. Uh, and they're trying to figure out, you know, how to prevent complete ruin in their life. And it'll be interesting to see. I don't think Donald Trump's paying for everybody's lawyers here. Um, and I think that's to me, to me, I'm much more interested in the Georgia case. I'm much more interested in what happens to Jeffrey Clark and Jenna Ellis in many ways than Donald Trump, even though I know that's weird. I, I mean, I just have the feeling that by the time this Georgia case gets to trial, to me, the, the, the thing that might set it apart from these other trials is it's going to be televised potentially, or maybe not. I don't know, but at least it's on the table. But if it's not, it's like, okay, it may not matter by that point, right? It may or may not, depending on what happens in the world. It could, it could matter tremendously because he could be the president of the United States, but it, it very good chance it may not matter as much, but I think it's going to matter a hell of a lot to, you know, Sidney Powell. I think it's going to matter. Yeah. So I, I do think it's going to be televised. Um, I thought that was decided, but maybe that was only for yesterday, but. Oh, that's amazing. I, I thought it was up in the air, but to me, if it is televised, it's going to be the, it's going to be, be the OJ of the twenty first oh, century. It's going to be bigger than OJ. It's going to be like OJ multiplied by Johnny Depp because, like the Johnny Depp trial, I mean, there was a lot packed there, right, in terms of how social media amplified bias and all sorts of problems, right? But the point is, the Johnny Depp trial created celebrities and created uh, hate and created all sorts of things. And O.J. Simpson trial, of course, in a different era, did the same. But, you know, the reason I'm saying Johnny Depp is their social media had a huge role in amplifying all these little clips that were made into viral moments. Mm -hmm. And so I, I can only imagine um, what that's going to look like. That will be a circus, Asha, because you're going to have 19 defendants potentially in the courtroom or however many are there. And, you know, are they going to really all end up there together, though? Come on. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I will just tell you. I, OK, I have some personal experience with this. That, you know, when my former office used to indict these street gangs and they'd indict, you know, 32 guys in one indictment, they would, in fact, have a whole bunch of little tables set up in a courtroom and you'd have all these different defense groups and you'd have eight different defendants, 12 different defendants, whatever, all they would all go up and do their own cross and they would coordinate, you know, who was going to cross examine on this or that or whatever. But yeah, I mean... It does happen sometimes. The alternative is for a judge to try the same case 19 times, and judges uh, don't like that. And you don't think that if they're going to try to sever, like, and, you know, there's somebody who is, like, maybe harassing, you know, the election official and is, like, 
you know, come on now, like you're now guilt by association because, you know, Donald Trump was calling the secretary of state and this was, or do they have to, if they want to get out of it, do they have to plead? Well, I'll tell you, if it's not a Donald Trump kind of case, if it's like a normal case, like if you're Joe Blow drug dealer with Jane Doe drug dealer, uh, you're screwed. Like you've got, (laughs) you're in the joint trial and your way out is to plead. Uh, maybe here you have a better argument because it's like, come on, everyone's gonna be so focused on Donald Trump. No one's gonna even pay attention to me, you know, defendant number 14 who did some very small, you know, some very narrow act. The other issue that happens in these joint trials, by the way, is all the evidence comes in and the jury hears it all. And they're told that they can only consider this piece of evidence as to this guy. And that piece of evidence as to this person. And this, you know, Jane Doe's only the only defendant this relates to. And they never actually, I mean, there's some magic words that are told that supposedly the jurors are supposed to follow. They're instructed that they're going to compartmentalize their minds. And we know they don't do that. And so if you're some person down on the list in this fall county, you're diamond, you're like, oh, I'm totally screwed. There's some massive conspiracy to overturn the election. And hey, I'm just a guy who was trying to get into the voting system or I was just trying to, you know, influence as one witness. And instead of a tiny little trial on that, I've got to be part of this whole cabang where they could just fill out my name and click guilty because or select guilty because they just are make finding everyone else guilty or something along those lines. Yeah. And in terms of you said, you know, this may not matter and I'm not sure what you mean. So there was a really interesting, you know, if we look into the crystal ball, let's imagine that Trump wins in 2024 and that would give him a lot of power over the federal charges that might still be proceeding against him. He could, you know, get his lackey into the Justice Department, have them dismiss the charges or whatever. He can't do that with this. And, you know, but we, and and by the way, the Justice Department has its own internal guidance about not prosecuting a former, or not prosecuting a sitting president because, not because of legal barriers, but because practically speaking, to defend against criminal charges would make him unable to execute his official duties. One imagines the same rationale would apply, you know, if it's a state uh, prosecution, though, of course, there's, so. I mean, just as a practical matter, not that there would be any bar to her doing it, but I'm just wondering whether that there could, there would be, I don't know, some kind of federalism argument that she has to drop the case or I, I, I think there would be a whole litigation rabbit hole that that would go down is my guess. Right. So that, I guess I was trying to argue the inverse. In other words, in that circumstance, her prosecution matters okay. a ton. Okay. So I'm saying, my point is you, you can, the way I was saying it wouldn't matter would be if Donald Trump loses and Jack Smith goes first and, and gets a conviction in, let's say the January 6th case and Trump or the Mar-a-Lago case or both. And she ends up going third because she's got 19 different defense attorneys schedules that she's got to take into account. And all these other issues and all these different motions, right, for her to get her case to trial to this massive, cumbersome case. By then, if Trump's already been convicted once or twice, 
of various crimes and he's going to be facing a prison sentence anyways, it just takes the stakes. It lowers the stakes of it. It's like, okay, will he be guilty again? Okay. And maybe people still care. I don't know. I think people seem to be, they they seem to get more and more excited every time he gets indicted again. I think that they'll be more and more excited when he gets convicted again. In, in normal world, I will just tell you, in normal world, when you convict R. Kelly once and then twice that he's going to prison for 20, 30 years, you lose interest. Everyone's just like, okay, we're done. Like, we got him. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The others, the other jurisdictions dismissed because they're just like, okay, he's already going to prison forever. But so I, I guess that's what I meant. But yeah, if he's president, you're absolutely right. Jeffrey, Attorney General Jeffrey Clark is going to quash the Mar-a-Lago and the January 6th cases. Um, and then there'll be federalism arguments made by the United States Department of Justice. Attorney General Jeffrey Clark is going to file some brief that says that because of, like you said, federalism, how can a state imprison the executive branch of the United States? And, you know, all of this stuff. Sure. I agree. And in that moment, Fonnie Willis will be at the center of the universe. Like she's going to be one of those important players in America. <laughs> like she, so I'm not, I'm not discounting that possibility, but there's definitely, that's only one possible future timeline. And it's, I mean, it, it hinges on whether Trump wins, but timeline wise, it will definitely bleed into the next administration. Sure. Right. I mean, there we're, yeah, because I would imagine that, first of all, that she and Jack Smith are going to have to figure out who goes first because Trump has the right to be at his trial and he can't be in multiple jurisdictions, I guess. I mean, I guess theoretically they both sovereigns could be doing it, but I don't think they would, right? Because he has to be physically present. They can't. You can't do it for constitutional reasons. He has to be present. My guess is that Jack Smith would go first. Yeah, I, I don't even think even if they got together and everyone in the world decided they wanted Fonnie Willis to go first, these bazillion defense attorneys working on this matter uh, are going to find a way to, for that not to happen because she's that's the problem with indicting everyone under the sun. It's like just getting all the attorneys there and getting everyone to show up and getting everyone the discovery and hearing everyone's motions and resolving every issue. It's there's no way that that case is getting to trial before Jack Smith, even if everyone on earth wanted it to. Like there's just no way that's happening. So can you unpack, and, and we still have Mar-a-Lago, too. Like, sure. wh- where, how do you see this all going down? Well. Let's assume that the election is not. Doesn't matter. An impediment. Yeah. Doesn't yeah. matter. because he, he, He's just, he's facing an indictment in four different jurisdictions. How would this look as, how would this unfold logistically? So the Manhattan case is out in front, right, in terms of timeline. It's just, to me, the least significant for a variety of reasons. I don't want to spend a lot. And, and I think Alvin Bragg has basically acknowledged that. And <laughs> I, like, think, I, I don't know how any fair, like-minded person could not acknowledge that. Like, I just think that's, un- everyone yeah. kind of understands that that was sort of whatever. So that's not as important. So that's going to happen and whatever happens there, I don't really expect it to impact anything else. In other words... Even if there's a conviction there, I don't think he's going to get imprisoned uh, at the very least before anything happens in these other cases. And the prison sentence there would probably be the lowest of any of these cases, if if there is any at all. But you don't think that trial would go first? It might, because it's set for trial first. It was indicted first and it's set for trial in the spring. So it very well could go first. Um, and, and there's fewer like big issues there. Like in the January 6th one, it's like a novel first of its kind prosecution and you can raise various arguments. Whereas just 
there, the, the Manhattan case is just like a books and records case. Like it's just straight. It's about stuff that happened before I became president for the most part. So I think that case could go first. And it's like, okay, it's like a warm up act, right? It's like when you're going to see U2 and Snow Patrol is the opening act. You're like, okay, uh, they had a hit or something. So you go, you, so I think that may be the first act. I, you think, Jan, I think January 6th is likely going to be the second trial because uh, Judge Cannon's not the, the one on, in charge of it. A, B, there's only one defendant. And C, you don't have like all these classified documents issues. I mean, right now they're debating where the skiff's going to be and, you know, what, what he's going to have to do. I mean, if he has to travel to Miami to review documents, like there's just going to be a lot of opportunity for delay in, in, the, in the Florida case. So I think January 6th goes next. Potentially, I mean, the only way it won't is if there's a bunch of a, of uh, motions issues. But you know, Judge Chutkin, to her credit, she did exactly. I think of something I previewed when we were talking about this last week. Is I'm like, what she's going to do is whenever he does, he has misbehavior. I think that's just going to inspire her to move this trial off faster. <laughs> and she basically came out and said it. Like she didn't, she didn't hide the fact. She's like, look, if you keep, you know, violating the rules. We're going to have to have a speedy trial to deal with it. So I think she's motivated to have a speedy trial. And then I would think Mar-a-Lago happens before. If, if it's not thrown out by canon, Mar-a-Lago presumably happens before the Fulton County case. Cause the Fulton County case is like trying to steer the Titanic. Like there's just too much, too much weight on that case. I, I, I would say it's January 6th, Mar-a-Lago, Manhattan, Fulton County. Manhattan, just just because the brag, just like whatever we understand, we don't really care. Yeah, I mean, but I, and I think like you know, I again, I think we need to look at what are the harms that are being vindicated. Who are the victims? I think I don't think Alvin Bragg would dispute that. You know, the victims of January sixth, which is like the entire country and members of Congress and the seat of government and our elections ought to be front and center and be the first one to go. And maybe, maybe he would want to go before Mar-a-Lago. I don't know. But like, I just see, I, I think January 6th is first. The defense attorneys are going to argue that the Manhattan case is a victimless crime. So, okay, there's some false entries in the records that weren't even sent to anyone. There's no allegation they were trying to defraud anybody. They're just these records, these these false entries that are in our own books and records. Like, what's the harm? They're going to say it's totally victimless. That's part of the. I mean, I'm not saying that that's the case, but I'm just saying that there's an argument to be a, a non-trivial argument to be made there that it's a totally victimless crime. That that that'll be their argument. Um. So yeah, it's a, a important case. I just don't know the difference with that case, Asha, is that it's already kind of teed up. It's indicted first. It's further along. And there's less issues. And so if January 6th goes first, to use your hypothetical, you could squeeze in a Manhattan trial, you know, with, you know while a SIPA appeal is going on or something, right? Anyway, I just, I know we're just like playing games. It feels like a little, like an LSAT question, you know, if, if Fonnie Willis goes last and, you know. Uh, you know, it's actually what I do. Uh, I do this stuff all the time. I mean, in real life, it's actually a very practical exercise. It's like, okay, you just got indicted. You know, what, what is, what's the next people are like, okay, what does the next two years of my life look like? And I have to try to plot it out. And it's, it's, you just learn it from experience. I saw the best meme. It was the, um, 
You know the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting? Yes. But it was What to Expect When You're Expecting Indictments. And it has a picture <laughs> of Donald Trump on oh, it. God. <laughs> Just made me laugh. I'm sorry. No, I mean, I get <laughs> it. it. It is. Look, it's... I will just say this. I mean, indictment, Donald Trump treats it like a joke and he gives, you know, gives the whole process his middle finger, but it's a big deal. Uh, and the lives of all these other people got turned upside down. And you know what? Uh, some of them in particular right now really deserved it. Uh, I mean, some of those crooked lawyers and so forth. So, um, yeah. interesting and important day. I got a lot of problems, but I have to say, I'm glad I'm not indicted. I'm glad I'm not a co-conspirator or an unindicted co-conspirator of anything. I'm glad too, Asha, because then I'd feel, <laughs> I, then I'd have to represent you. So please don't. And then we may not be able to do this podcast. Exactly. We'd have to remain silent. Hey everyone. Have you ever heard of HelloFresh? They deliver fresh ingredients and easy to make recipes right to your door making home cooking a breeze. I'm really excited to try out new dishes every week, and I'm definitely looking forward to using some of that time HelloFresh will save me from shopping, planning meals, and even cleaning up to play more fetch with Pancake. When life gets busy, don't call for delivery. Get HelloFresh. Go to hellofresh.com slash 50complicated and use code 50complicated for 50% off plus free shipping. Fall is creeping up. And with it, the hustle of the season. But don't fret. HelloFresh is here to make your life deliciously simple. Choose your recipes, pick a delivery date, and then kick back, soaking in those final days of summer, knowing dinner's handled. I can't wait to try my first recipe. One pan cheesy black bean tacos with green pepper and smoky red pepper crema. This recipe is exactly what I need in my busy life. In just 15 minutes, I can have a healthy and delicious lunch. HelloFresh doesn't just save you time, it saves you money. It's 25% less expensive than takeout and even more affordable than hitting the grocery store. All that's left for you to do is unbox those fresh pre-portioned ingredients and whip up a meal quickly. Dinner just got a whole lot easier. Go to hellofresh.com slash 50complicated and use code 50complicated for 50% off, plus free shipping. Okay, so let's get the scuttlebutt on the special counsel that was appointed for Hunter Biden. Another Groundhog Day situation. Yep. Yeah. By the way, isn't that kind of like a, a situation where the the GOP like caught the caught the car, like the dog that caught the car? Uh, it's like we really want a special counsel. It's like okay, you got one. It's like okay, now what? Right? Like what? How do we argue with the? How do we argue about this? Right? Like uh, they all. Well, asked yeah, and for George this. Conway made a great like flowchart about this, where you know every option, whether you're appointing a special counsel or not, it, all of this ends in like outrage somehow. So. Um, you know, because let's remember the goal with the criticism is to discredit really any outcome, I think, um, now that they know that. I mean, you know, they know that he's not going to go down for the things that they're accusing him of. And so there has to be a narrative that explains why, even though he's completely being charged with other crimes, but they 
they need the crimes that are linked to, you know, Joe Biden's corruption or whatever. And if if they at some level know that that's not going to come to fruition, then they need to create the narrative that it's all because it's a corrupt process. Right. I mean, I think the, I, I would, you know, if I was going to put a label on the sort of Hunter Biden stuff that's floating out there that gets mentioned in right wing media, I would I wouldn't even call them allegations. I'd say it's innuendo for the most part. I haven't really seen any meat on the bones there. Um, but there's definitely some weird stuff going on in the Hunter Biden case. Um, and I've really spent a lot of time trying to figure this out, talking to people in the know, that sort of thing. So here's what I would say. A few things that just happened, right? I mean, we, we know there was a deal. I think we've talked about this in the past. Actually. We knew yeah. there was a deal. It kind of got scuttled at the last minute. Right. We know there was an appointment of a special counsel. Now Weiss suddenly, who didn't want, he said he didn't need, want or need special counsel powers, suddenly is interested in being special counsel. Garland makes him special counsel. And uh, there's been a change in attorneys. Um, Hunter fired one of his attorneys, who's uh, now a, quote, witness to the gov- what the government did in a plea deal, supposedly. And now he's going with Abby Lowell as his only attorney. So what does this all mean? Well, a few things. Um, you know, I, I, I've said in the past, Asha, that this whole deal with Hunter and what they had, it, what it told me was, and this is not uncommon in DOJ land, is that they go hard at somebody, they think they've got some big thing on them, and they come up with nothing and they're left with like these, these straws. And basically the defense is like, well, the government wants something to walk away. And so the defense is like, okay, we'll give you whatever. And so, I mean, Hunter basically was getting a harsher treatment than most people. Like most people, when they don't pay their taxes, get like a letter and have to pay penalties and interest. This guy didn't fully pay his taxes. He's getting charged with a misdemeanor in a federal court. Right. And he's got to deal with that. Okay. The defense is like, we're going to accept that. It, but it all got blown up. There was some language in the in the plea agreement. The judge questioned. I think you had the right analysis on that, Ash. I give you like tons of credit. You were right. Uh, you were on on target. Uh, not in a way I wasn't. About you noticed what the judge did, and and what was what she was keyed in on. You were right on that. Uh, was what I'm told. And and now which the, was that that they had muddied the waters by bleeding over the conduct that he was supposedly off the hook for, but he really wasn't. So he didn't really fully have a meeting of the minds on what he was agreeing to. Yeah. And she was also concerned about there was this uncharged, there was this issue. There's an issue with the gun charge because under current second amendment jurisprudence, he has like that whole statutes called into question. The idea that just because you're taking drugs that you can't, you don't have your second amendment right to possess a firearm. Um, you know, the, there was no uh, drug laws in the fra- when the framers were creating the Second Amendment. And so given the way that the right wing uh, has interpreted the Second Amendment, which is, of course, has been adopted by the Supreme Court, courts are striking down that law, which was part of the deal. He was going to plead guilty to that um, and waiving. Essentially and she his- was going to have to be the one who determined whether or not he violated the yep. non-prosecution agreement. And she felt that that was a separation of powers problem. Right. So because you were on top of all the so Asha had like his usual super keen insight into what the judge was thinking. Oh, um you're so sweet. Of course. No. So <laughs> so you figured that out. So what's going on? Well, you know, the the bottom line is the the prosecutors are want a tougher deal. They want to get more 
out of punter. And the defense thinks they have a great case that they think like they're getting railroaded. And so this is a way of changing defense teams. Abby Lowell is a very aggressive defense attorney, successful. Uh, you know, I know him and respect him. He's going to go after the government hard and they're going to use the last guy who there th- is, he was exiting stage left to say, basically they're going to use him as a witness to say, yeah, the government was trying to screw us on a deal. So what does this have to do with Weiss being a special counsel? My read, I don't know this. I have no inside info on this, but my read on it, which I think is kind of consistent with some people who know more than I do is that this is a way for the government, for the prosecutor to get some leverage here. Because, right, I mean, I think the defense is just like, whatever, what do you got on our guy? Some misdemeanor tax thing? Like, you know, we we have arguments that we're going to raise in the defense. Like, why should we plead guilty to your misdemeanor? That's all you got. And now Weiss is like, well, now I'm the special counsel. I'm going to investigate this FAR issue and whatever else. And I'm going to try, you know, I'm going to get you this time, Batman, you know, that sort of thing. You know, I get you or whatever, like Wiley Coyote, like next time Roadrunner, you know, that sort of thing. And so uh, it's just a way of creating more leverage. There may be a deal because maybe if if Weiss doesn't really want much, but the defense is both sides are posturing and gearing up for a fight because I think the Hunter side thinks they've gotten railroaded here. They got screwed. You know, Hunter doesn't look like he's trying to like fall in a sword for his dad. And the, and the prosecutors are like, want to get some sort of a win here, but they don't seem like they've, it doesn't seem like they've found much to work with. Well, if that's true, Renato, it's incredibly disappointing because Merrick Garland would have to sign off on that. The attorney general is, is responsible for appointing this uh, special counsel and the criteria for doing so is whether there may be a conflict of interest or the appearance of a conflict of interest, or if the case is of such you know public import that it's really important that it have like maybe this extra veneer of independence or whatever. I don't think either of those criteria are met here. To the extent that there may be a perceived conflict of interest because Joe Biden is a president and the attorney general you know, is appointed by him. David Weiss is a Trump appointee holdover. Like that buffer was already there. And so for, you know, so I don't think anything that's happened with this plea deal has changed anything like that. It's not like there was a special counsel appointed from the get-go. You know what I'm saying? And so that I feel like it's incredibly disappointing. And because I don't see what the rationale would be to do that, to just to get, you know, to create the, sense that the prosecution has some leverage or a win. I mean, really? Like Merrick Garland? Like, come on. And the only other, you know, reason I can think of is that he feels bullied, that if he didn't do it, that it's going to, it's going to, you know, people are going to say that they went easy on, you know, Hunter and this was the Biden Justice Department. But here's the thing. They're going to do that anyway, as we are seeing even with the appointment of a special counsel and i'm not i'm not going to get into colorful language about what i think about Merrick Garland because this is a family show but <laughs> wow i i don't know like all across the board okay let's just go back the fact that he didn't so much as make any kind of public statement or announcement about the expiration of those obstruction charges from you know 10 seasons ago 10 seasons ago in the Trump show, Mueller report, 10 counts of obstruction, just those just kind of disappeared and, and went off into the wind. 
Um, then we had the, you know, reports that they were dragging their feet and not really inclined to investigate Trump directly for January 6th until basically the January 6th committee made them look really bad. Um, and then they finally got that into gear. Um, you know, and then we've just seen, I don't know, like this, the appointment of a special counsel to, you know, for Joe Biden's classified doc. Like, I don't know. I mean, I'm just not impressed with this situation. Yeah. Well, I will just say I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of this either. I mean, to me, always the big thing, and I've said it before, is just not even reckoning with any of the abuses of power by the Justice Department under Bill Barr, saying nothing about that. You're the new attorney general. You're not going to try to reckon with some of the, you know, some of the abuses of power in the DOJ before or say anything about it or change your practices or, you know, have an inquiry into that. It bothers me. But here, I mean, I'll just to make it more plausible to put some meat on the bone so people don't mis misunderstand what I'm saying. I, you know, Garland here probably was just told by Weiss, I think I need to be special counsel and a special counsel powers. And Garland's like, well, I guess I have to say yes, because then I'm going to look bad if I say no. And I already said I would say yes if you want. I think he publicly committed that he'd, he'd grant them to him if that's what Weiss decided. And I think what Weiss is probably, where Weiss is probably at is he's probably being told by his subordinates, well, you know, they're, they're not willing to cut a deal. They want to fight onward, the Hunter team. We need some, we need to develop some additional, we need to start investigating this far stuff if we're going to go to trial or f investigate whatever it is. You know what? Why couldn't he do that as, as the Attorney General of Delaware? I don't really understand that, you know, becoming a special counsel doesn't give you like greater, it, in fact, if anything, it narrows your authority because you are appointed to investigate a particular kind of matter. And they were already investigating him. And it sounded like from that plea hearing that went awry that they were already looking into these potential FARA violations. Right. So the whole special counsel thing is just a show. I agree with that because the only thing might have been or traditionally the U.S. attorneys can find in their prosecutions to, you know, that district. But Garland had already expanded Weiss's authority and said that he had authority to charge anything he wanted anywhere in the country. So if the attorney general get granted him that authority, I agree with you. I mean, it also means there's a report uh, that goes public. I mean, maybe what Weiss is thinking is like, well, we got a bunch of stuff that doesn't look good, but we can't, you can't charge it. And we think, you know, I should put it in a report. I don't know, but it's, it's definitely bizarre. Um, I gave you the best explanation I can. The fact that you're not satisfied with it, I think is telling, right? In other words, I'm trying to give you, make the most as somebody who's informed, who's talking to people, trying to figure this out and get the right answer for us, like of what really is going on. The fact that this is the best I can come up with and it's still unsatisfying to us tells us that there's something weird going on here. Something weird and it's just weak. So Renato, before we go, I'm listening to this really interesting book that somebody recommended to me on Instagram, and it's called Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away, and it's by Annie Duke. Oh, wow. The yeah, poker the poker player. player. I love it. Yeah, and it's really fascinating. It's got a lot of research from behavioral economics about, you know, why people don't quit. And, you know, that, that we celebrate perseverance and grit and people sticking things through. And her point is, actually, it's often the wise thing to do is to quit 
I mean, there are circumstances where it makes more sense to do that. And wow. it's really got me thinking about things. It's got me thinking about like when I've changed course in my life and, you know, my, my son, for example, like this past, um, he's listening to the book with me, you know, he had been studying for the ACT and, you know, he took it, you know, back in April and, you know, he did, he did fine. He did good. But then he was just like, I hate this test. And he was going to take it again. He's like, I hate this test. I like the SAT better. And it was one of those things where it's like, wow, you've spent like three months studying for this. Do you really want to switch tests? But then we did. And I think he's, it's actually going to be the right choice, you know? And it was like this whole idea of like sunk cost fallacy yes. and how, you know, you look, you you don't make good decisions actually when you're, people are less likely to quit when they're down and more likely to quit when they're ahead, when what the economics tells us is that you should really do it the other way around. Because there's a lot of psychology going on. Super interesting. I, so, so I'm super, I'm very much into behavioral economics and game theory. I use that a lot in my practice, actually, um, when I'm preparing witnesses and stuff. We can talk about that in a future uh, episode, maybe. Um, but I, I'm, a, I think poker is an amazing analogy for in really great way of understanding game theory. I actually, there's a game that I play, a, a, a mobile game where you have to sort of decide whether to be in or out. And there's that I see moment. I became a much better player when I realized I had to quit much more, like drop out much more when the other player is trying to raise the stakes. I, I think that's really fascinating. And it applies to a lot of things in life. Like ultimately you have to decide. I feel like one thing that we, as we mature and get older, we figure out what we're good at and what we're not good at. I don't know if this happened to you. And I really understand now like what I excel at and what things I'm not as good at. And I try to focus my attention on the things that I really excel at and, you know, just cut my, cut my losses on everything else. Yeah. And she says, I mean, this goes for all kinds of context. So she talked about why it's hard for governments to extricate from a war that they've begun. Oh, wow. You know, that they don't know when to quit all the way down to, you know, not leaving a job that mm -hmm. is um, really not serving you. And there's, you know, all kinds of variables that come into play that, that cloud your thinking. Um, and, you know, I think I've overall been good about quitting. And as you said, like knowing myself and, and knowing what's going to give me the returns I want and when it's like, you know, I, I'm not going to get what I'm expecting out of it. I'm really bad at doing that in relationships, though. I will completely double down and believe that if I just keep working at it, it's going to be what I want it to be. I've been there. I'm myself. getting better. I'm getting better. I, I, I had a work I'm quitting earlier that. and earlier when I see the signs, but that's the place where my judgment gets clouded. I think I've worked my way through that. I had the exact same problem. M. S. W. Media.